0: Indeed, a great delight to be here in God's house, on God's day, with God's people. Amen. Amen. Amen? Amen. We thank God for his mercies to us this day as we've been abundantly fed from his word today as we've remembered our great Savior and his victory over the grave. And so I'd like to call your attentions your attention this evening, uh, back to that passage of scripture that Pastor Devon read in our hearing this morning. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. If you follow along with me, you'll find these words. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them. Who told these things to the apostles and the words seemed to them like idle tales or nonsense and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. Before we go on, brethren, let us pray and ask God to be with us during this hour. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great mercy to us in Christ. We thank you for your spirit, which has given us new life, given us eyes to see, granted us faith to believe. And so as we come here on this Lord's Day, as we remember the resurrection of our great Savior, we ask, Lord, now that you would draw our hearts out closer to him, that our love might increase as we come to the table of remembrance. And, Father, we pray that you would give us greater love for one another. Take your word, Lord, and do what only you can do. For we ask it in the mighty name of our great Savior. Even the Lord Jesus. Amen. There are some things that we are familiar with because of our exposure to books in school and literature, and perhaps to movies. And one of the things that come across Those different genres are things called flashbacks, sometimes called analepsis. And an analepsis is an interjected scene that takes the narrative back in time from the current point in the story. Flashbacks are often used to recount events that happened before the story's primary sequence of events to fill in crucial backstory. In the opposite direction, we have flash-forwards, and they reveal the events that will occur in the future. But both flashback and flash-forwards are used to cohere a story, to develop a character, or add structure to a narrative. In literature, an internal analypsis is a flashback to an earlier point in the narrative. An external analipsis is a flashback to a time before the narrative started. In film, flashbacks depict the subjective experience of a character by showing a memory of a previous event, and they are often used to resolve an enigma. In our text, we find here that Peter, after having listened to the report of the women who were at the tomb, and verse 12 says he marveled to himself at what had happened. It was an enigma to Peter. It was mysterious. It was puzzling to him what he had seen. This is not the first time that he is caused to marvel. The same word is used in Matthew chapter 8 and is translated in some of your translations as Amazed. If you turn with me there to Matthew chapter 8, you'll find an account here that you're very familiar with. Matthew chapter 8 is the account of when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples. And at verse 23, we read these words. Now, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, "Lord, save us, for we are perishing." But he said to them, "Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith?" Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and they were, and there was a great calm. So the men, here's our word, marveled, saying, "Who can this be?" That even the winds and the sea obey him. That's the New King James translation. It literally means what sort of man is this? Or the King James says, what manner of man is this? They marveled at this 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 Jesus who was in the boat with him, with them. They were no strangers to water. They were fishermen. They'd seen water and lots of water. No doubt they had seen water overflowing into their ships. But this account says they were afraid and they feared for their lives. They said, we are perishing. But when Jesus stood and calmed the winds and the waves, they were amazed. Even the wind and the waves obey him. This word is not only used by mere men, But the God man himself marveled and was amazed. If you look in Luke chapter seven, you'll see even our Lord being amazed. In Luke chapter seven, we read that account of the centurion who had a servant who was ill and he sought our Lord Jesus that he might heal him. And this servant was ready to die. And the Bible goes on and tells us that this this interaction and the the man was a man of good character. He loved our nation, the scripture says, and has built us a synagogue. But he told Jesus, you need not come to my house to to cure my servant. He says, all you need to do is speak the word. This man understood something about who Jesus was. He knew Christ was the same one who said in the beginning. Let there be light. And there was light. And He says, all you need to do, Christ, is speak the word. You don't even need to come near my servant's body to heal him. And in verse nine, it says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He was amazed. And turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, not even among the covenant people who had had the promises and had the recorded history of their forefathers and how God brought them out of Egypt and out of Egyptian bondage and through the wilderness. Those who had testimony of the faithfulness of God and the power of God. Had not faith like this centurion. And because so, our Lord even marveled at the Lord and his power, as we heard of this morning. Power in Pastor Sean's message point three, the power of this one who raises the dead. Our Lord was amazed, I say, and the centurion's faith was great. He didn't say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. No, he said, just speak the word and it will be done. You don't need to bother to come down. This is great faith. And this is the kind of faith that we should covet. So Peter is pondering what has taken place and he's considering the events with amazement. For initially, he had not believed the women's report. He and the other disciples thought what the women were saying was nonsense, was idle chatter. I resist the urge to bring some application, brethren, (laughs) about listening to our wives and to the women. But Peter rose up and he ran. Was it because of curiosity? I don't know. But the Bible says he ran to see if those things were so. So now I'm going to interject this analepsis and take you back to a scene in Peter's history that may have gripped his mind as he departed the empty tomb. Perhaps he thought about the time when he, James and John, accompanied our Lord in the high mountain. Matthew chapter 17. And there our Lord was transfigured with Elijah and Moses. In Mark chapter 9, we read these words As they came down the mountain, he charged them, he ordered them to tell no one until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Verse 10 said they were discussing that statement. Some translations say they. They kept saying, they kept saying these things to one another and to themselves. They kept the matter to themselves. The New American Standard says they seized that statement that our Lord spoke to them. They took hold of it. It Reminds us of the words of the apostle in Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must give the most, the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. The Son of Man came to suffer many things. The disciple says, how, how is this that, that it's written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? They did not understand what was going on and the words that they heard from our Lord. And so they were perplexed. The Son of Man must suffer? Verse 31 of the ninth chapter of Mark says, For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Brethren, they were perplexed by this treatment that was coming upon our Lord, and they did not understand it. In Luke chapter 9, it tells us that our Lord was speaking to Elijah and Moses about his departure, about his death, and how he was going to come to this place of being mistreated by wicked men. And so Peter may have been thinking about these things as he Departed the tomb and and pondered and marvelled at what he had seen this empty tomb. However, the more recent flashback or analepsis in Peter's mind would have been his bitter denial, as we read of in Luke chapter twenty-two. Peter denied the Lord as the Lord had predicted, and he wept bitterly. That was fresh on Peter's Mind, perhaps as he thought back to the events that preceded this this day of resurrection, perhaps he thought about that time when they were asleep in the garden, and the Lord asked them to watch. Could you not watch me for an hour? Perhaps Peter was thinking about how he would defend the Lord, and when they awoke and arose, and Judas came with those who were going to take Christ. The Bible says, and Peter took off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Maybe he's thinking back on those events and those scenes in his life with Christ before this day of resurrection. He took off his right ear. It seems that it, he wasn't just aiming at the ear. If Peter was right handed, and I don't know if he was or no, there's no slight on you left handers out there. But to take a man's left ear, right ear off, a right-handed man would have to reach across the body. And if he's swinging this way, he was going after the man's whole head. And he was thinking about this, and the Lord rebuked him and told him to put away his sword. Peter's thinking about all these things. He's pondering. But let me take you back to the scene that I think Our Lord clearly displays and opens up to their understanding and to their hearing what is about to take place. That which preceded the resurrection in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22. Verse seven says it came. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There, make ready. So they went and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. They were not the only ones in Jerusalem on that day, Jerusalem was filled with people coming to the feast. It was crowded. This was not the only upper room. This was not the only place where the Passover was being prepared in Jerusalem. However, I submit to you that there were no other rooms like this room. There were no other words spoken in those other rooms where the Passover was being prepared and eaten like the words that were spoken in this room. Verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is finished or fulfilled rather in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave it and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he looked and he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it was and has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Three points I want to make from this portion that gives us this institution of the Lord's Supper, as no doubt Peter, having left the tomb, remembers and thinks back on this time when our Lord talks about what he is about to accomplish and what he is going to do. My brethren's points this morning all started with peas. I'm a little older than they are, so I'm going to just stay at the front of the alphabet, and bring our study to three points, starting with C. The cross, the command, and the condemned. As we look at this passage in this order, there's nothing new about this, brother. This is old. It's an old story. I hope we never get tired of hearing this old, old story. I may have said this before, but I remember having a friend who was tired of, he says, can't we just move on to some other things? Why are we talking about the gospel? What? When we get tired of the gospel, when we get tired of these fundamental and foundational truths, then there's something dreadfully wrong with our hearts. The older I get, the more I am. In love with the words of the apostle Peter, he says, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I'm going to stir you up. Though you know these things, though you've been establishing these things, I'm going to keep on reminding you. Some of us have memories that are waning and failing. We have to be remembered time and time again. And the word of God has many, many exhortations for us and the people of God and even sinners. To remember. So, brethren, let us look, first of all, at the first C, the cross. Verse 19. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Christ says, this is my body. He held up the bread. And he says, this is my body. That's a metaphor. We don't believe in transubstantiation. We don't believe that the elements actually turn into the body of Christ. What Christ was saying that this this bread represents my body. And this bread is broken. And I want you to understand that one day in this near future, my body is going to be broken. Why is it going to be broken? He says it's going to be broken for you. This is what we are to remember. There are many things we can remember about the Lord Jesus Christ. We may remember his miracles. We may remember his his profound teaching and, and shutting the mouths of the scribes and the Pharisees. There are many things in the scriptures that we can remember about Christ. But when the instituted supper was Spoken by our Lord in this upper room. What he wanted them to remember was the fact that his body was going to be broken. And broken for them on a Roman gibbet. He would suffer at the hands of men and he would give his life. This is what we are to remember. This is what he calls us to remember. First and foremost, his death. We're to bring our minds and our hearts by faith to this one who shed his blood on Calvary. Listen to Bishop Ryle. We should notice, he says, for one thing, in these verses, that the principal object of the Lord's Supper was to remind Christians of Christ's death For sinners. It's not a sacrifice. The whole ordinance was meant to keep fresh in our memories the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the satisfaction which that sacrifice made. It was a. Satisfactory. Substitutionary. Giving of himself satisfied the demands of the law. And he lived the life that we couldn't live. And he died the death that the law demanded for sinners. Was he a sinner? By no means. He was holy, harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners. But he was the sin bearer and and, and our sins were placed upon him. And he wants us to remember this. And, And in many churches, we find that not only do we speak these words, but we actually engrave those words on the table. This do in remembrance of me. Do what? Remember what? Remember that I shed my blood. I gave my life for you on Calvary's tree. You see, Ernest, that's that's old hat. We, we know that. But sometimes our remembrance is, is all academic. and Sterile. Listen to a dear brother speaking of that very thing although we may think of remembering as primarily an activity of the mind our process of remembering is not to be a mere academic or intellectual exercise it is indeed that but it is far more than that it is to be remembering that grips the souls we might observe he says up A monument in the park or an exhibit in the the museum and say, I remember that from history class, and then simply move on to the next exhibit. We're not to remember Jesus' death that way. We are to remember him in a way that stirs us in the inner man to love our Savior more and moves us to serve him more wholeheartedly. We are to remember him the way American soldiers fighting in the Mexican-American War would remember the Alamo. Or a Marine fighting in the Pacific Theater during World War II would remember Pearl Harbor, would remember this exercise of faith. With the think of Christ by faith, this sacrament imparts grace to us, brethren, Christ's virtue comes to us by faith as we exercise faith on this thing. When we hold this bread in our hand, it's not simply the bread it was before it was blessed at this table. But now it takes on a new significance. It's, it's a visible representation or it's a symbol to make us see with all of our faculties, all of our senses. We smell the bread. We see the bread. We feel the bread. We taste the bread. And so God engages our whole being, even our sight and our ears when we hear the word proclaimed about what this bread represents. It is Christ's body broken for you. This remembrance, I say, is to point us to the cross. Christ's broken body. He shed his blood. He poured out his life's blood, the blood of the new covenant. In this blood, we have forgiveness. We have the forgiveness of our sin. How can we ever think about what we were, knowing what what we were deserved, and not be moved in our souls by what Christ endured for us? Think on what Christ has done. Take those passages of Scripture and read all the things that he endured by the hands of evil men. It was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, but it was by the hands of wicked men that he was spat on and beaten and mocked for us. But that's not the deepest stroke that pierced him. The father poured out his wrath, his eternal, his holy wrath upon his Son. That which unrepentant and unbelieving sinners will endure in hell for all eternity. Christ endured the torments that we deserve. It's like if someone threatened your life and I ran up in an effort to try to rescue you. And I fought them off, but they fought me back. And they ganged up on me, and they beat me. And I came because of you, trying to rescue you. And I'm bloody, you get away free. But there I lay, lying on the ground, bleeding and dead. And you'll look back one day, and you'll perhaps see a picture of old Ernest. And every time you see that picture, you'll remember that your life was spared a horrible ending because someone else stepped in your place. Every time you see a Detroit Tiger baseball cap... (laughs) You'll remember how that cap was knocked off my head with a baseball bat, and I was pummeled by evil men to save your life. So, brethren, as you read the scriptures, look and see what Christ has done and what he has endured for you. Do this in remembrance of what? Of the cross. The cross not just intellectually, but let what Christ did for you affect your emotions and affect your heart and move you, if it will, to tears as you would for a loved one who stepped in your place. Secondly, there's a command. Christ says, do this. That's a command. It's a command from Christ to come to the table and remember me and what I've endured for you as needy sinners. It's interesting that many people think that it's an awful thing to break the Ten Commandments, and to disobey God's law. But they think lightly about this command. And there are some who absent themselves from this table, which the Elders of Grace Fellowship Church didn't make up. We didn't say, I think it would be a good idea on a certain Lord's Day evening every month to make the people of God come and take of these elements. The Lord instituted this and he didn't offer it as a suggestion. It was a command. Come and do this. It's a time where the family comes together and we share together. We're We're united in one body. We are one family and we eat together as a family. We have the same father. We have the same savior. We have the same salvation. And at the same time, we come to this table And we partake of these elements, which our Lord has commanded us to come and to remember him by. So we come, brethren, we come to the table. And as the elements are passed out, we hold on to them. You don't drink as soon as you get your cup and you don't take a bite of the bread. Only it's a little bit tiny piece of bread, but you don't eat it when you first get it. We wait till everyone is served. Everyone in the family is served and we partake of this meal together as a family. And God calls his family, his children to come and to remember him. As often as you do this, you, do, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming back again. But until he does, he has commanded us to come and remember him in this way. Not only are we to remember the fact that this speaks of the cross and all that Christ endured for needy sinners. The fact that Christ has come and commanded us to come to this table for our benefit, for our good, that we might drink of these things. But it also speaks, this passage speaks of the condemned. Look at verse 21. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes, and it has been determined by woe. But woe to that man, he says, pardon me. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In another place, it says, our Lord says, it would have been better for that man had he never been born. That's a serious statement coming from the Lord of glory. It would have been better for this man who betrayed him to have never been born. But he was at the table. He was there in the upper room with the other disciples. But everyone who sat at the table. Was not a family member. They were not all holy. There was one there who was not. And it's true many times in churches. There are people who come to the Lord's table and they partake of this feast that is designed for the family of God, for the children of God. But they're not holy. They've not been washed in the blood. They've not come to this one who gave his life a ransom for many. Be careful about how we treat this table, how we come to this table. This one who betrayed our Lord, the Bible says Satan entered into him. He was under the sway of the evil one. He had not relinquished his sin. He was still holding on. He was still in bondage to his sin and his wickedness. Don't come to the table if you've not repented of your sins and believed on Christ, or you'll be in the company of this one, this one who betrayed our Lord, this one who still held on to his sin. And we can make all kinds of excuses about this sin and that sin. And I understand the fact that we're all still sinners in, in many ways, but we've been washed if we've trusted Christ in the blood of the Lamb. And we purpose and endeavor after new obedience. And we don't walk perfectly, but purposefully. We follow Christ and we walk with him and we love him. But there are some just like this one. Who are condemned. Who will experience the eternal wrath of a holy God. Because they've not believed on Christ. They've not believed on this one. So I ask you this, this evening, if you don't partake of these elements, why not? Why not? There's nothing greater than what Christ has provided for sinners than this. You can get a large raise you can have a large family. You can have excellent health. You name all the benefits that people clamor after and long for. There's no greater blessing than to have your sins forgiven. This is the, the covenant of the new covenant in his blood. What are the blessings of the new covenant? Christ, the, the word God says that he will remember our sins no more. They are cast as far as the east is from the west. What is more grand and glorious than having your sins forgiven? There is nothing more glorious than that. So as we come to the table, brethren, let us examine ourselves. And make sure we're not like this one, this this one who betrayed Christ, this one who held on to his sins. And when you're tempted to sin and hold on to those things which are contrary to God's law, remember. That's the place, that's the seat of condemnation. But there's no need to be condemned because Christ is a gracious savior. He's a loving savior. God is full of mercy and abundant in loving kindness. God delights in showing mercy. And so he says, come. All that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. So, brethren, we must come. This table is a discriminating table. It separates it separates. There are only two kind of people in this room. those who believe and those who don't believe. There are only two kind of people. You see, my parents believe, my uncle believes. I know some folks that don't believe. Well, I'm in the middle here somewhere. There is no middle. There is no middle. Either, you, either you're following Christ by faith, either you're walking in holiness or you're walking in the flesh and you're fulfilling the desires of the flesh and you're walking in sin. Even though it's glazed over with religious talk and it's glazed over with a lot of theological knowledge, if you're walking in sin, The Bible says if if you're walking in darkness, John's really blunt about this. If, if If you're walking in darkness and you claim that you have fellowship with God, he says that's a lie. And so we examine ourselves. Am I walking with Christ? Am I obeying Christ? Am I making my every effort to obey all of his commands? He's commanded us to come to the table. And to remember what he's done to put those sins away, because we're prone to wonder. We're prone to leave the God that we love. And so we need this reminder, brethren, as often as we do it. To remind us of the sacrifice that was made for us. To remind us that there is a cross. That hung on Calvary, that that that, that bore the body of our Lord. And he calls us to come and to remember him and to feed on him by faith that we might know the blessings of sins forgiven. Peter perhaps looked back as he pondered those things walking home All this has really come to pass what our Lord has said would happen. He has been crucified. He has been beaten. He has been mocked. He's been judged. And he suffered an awful death. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood. And he sealed my pardon. With his blood. That's why we say hallelujah. What a savior. Amen.